Okay, we began Shaftim last week. Let's see the first Pasuk again, and then we'll go to Pasuk Beis. As we mentioned, the question he was posed to the Ur of Atumim, and despite the fact that each Shevet has to conquer its own Mokum, there will be some cooperation. doesn't mean there's lack of cooperation if they don't do this, but the relationship of Shimon and Yehuda was unique, based on last week's Parsha. The fact that Shimon was certainly uh, given a bracha, but given a bracha to point out his weakness and his strength. So Yankov explains Kanos is a positive thing when used in the correct measure. And if there's too much concentrated in one place, it's not healthy. Shimon Levi had wiped out Shechem for reasons which they felt were proper. Yaakovinu felt it was dangerous, impetuous, and not calculated. And by the Dover, they were attacked afterwards, and it took Nisim to get out of that mess. And Lamaisa, the fact is that there is some kanos necessary in various situations. Levi was split up. They're putting all the Arlovim throughout Eretz Yisrael. And Shimon was elected, which is a very, very fine job and a privilege to be the Malamde Tinekis of Klaiso, which means also you have to move around, not as designated as Levi was, but Lamaisa, their Nachla is not as defined. There's sort of a subset swallowed up within Shevet Yehuda. So the second shot in Rashi, which we'll get back to in a moment, is that Yehuda, as in Shevet Yehuda, was talking to Shimon as in Shevet Shimon, not Yehuda or Sneel ben Kanaz talking to his brother. Both Pshatim are certainly possible. Rashi will bring down both in a moment. And the fact that they're trying to figure out which Shevet goes first, if we just explain that each Shevet has to fight for their own territory, why don't we all go at the same time? The answer is that they knew that the Umus here, the seven nations that were conquered, not just the seven nations, all the surrounding neighbors, the whole world, really looking what is Klai Yisrael going to do? Are they going to finish them off? Is there now going to be pushback because Yeshua ben Nun was no longer alive? And maybe they'll be able to fight back and take back what they lost. And therefore it's pretty critical that the first battle be won. So that was their question. Otherwise, no shy over here. Everybody go do what you have to do and get out, uh, weed out the pockets of resistance, if you'll call it. That wasn't the shy They had to do that eventually. And the shy is who goes first? Which battle should we actually engage in first? Yes? So Yerifo was the first battle, right? Yeah, that's a long time ago already. They already had lost eye, then captured eye. And then gone on to conquer probably Rave of Eretz Yisrael. We don't know what the exact percentages are. If there's 10, 20, 30 percent left, which is foretold by the Pusik, Hashem said that I'm not going to let you conquer everything at once because if you have desolate land which you're not ready to take and populate yet, because Klai Yisrael has to grow into this matzav, and that takes a few generations, there are going to be lions and tigers and bears and all sorts of things taking over, and we don't want that. And that was the good news. The other news throughout Sefer Shevetim is they went even slower than that. 
and they sort of stopped and started a little bit, but basically said, no, we have control of most of it, and there are people here, but maybe the liberals said, maybe they're not so bad. And the quasi-conservatives said, they're bad, we're going to charge them taxes, that's going to keep them in their place, neither of which was true. And that's going to be the single biggest problem, which will lead to all the other problems, of Zara will seep in, and Chukas Akam will seep in, and all the other bad influence will seep in because they're still here. And if you have Rahmim on Achzarim, you're going to have Achzarius on Rahmanim, and that's going to be a big problem. No, uh, everybody has, some, they're living somewhere, yeah. They have something already, but they have ways to go, and they don't necessarily need it yet. Part of the problem, that's why I just described, the Pusik says you can go slow. So a lot of people said, Pusik said we're going to go slow, so we're going slow. So Hidr Mitzvah going very slow, but that wasn't, uh, that wasn't necessarily Hidr Mitzvah over here. But that was the, that was the problem, yeah. They went home. And they're comfortable, and they have fortified cities, which worked when they weren't there. They took 95% of the army, and they're fighting. And they just all proper. They left a few guards, and it worked. It worked, and it worked well, and they went home. And oddly enough, it's an interesting point, uh, we don't find this taina. However, the first people to go to Gullus were Reuven and Gud. Because even though they had everything they were supposed to conquer, but on their peripheral on the other side were Mogayim and Odeh So that's why it wasn't such a great idea in the first place to be out in the bundaks in a place which doesn't really have full Kedushas Yisrael. There are some Nafkaminas. It's not Eretz of Asch, It has Dinim and not all the Dinim. And Moshe Rabbeinu didn't say no, but he didn't bring it up in the first place either. One of the very rare cases. It's not talking about Yechidim over here. It's talking about whole Shvatim. If it wasn't a fantastic idea, why not say no? It's a scary question. The answer is even more frightening. You ever think of that question? Lamaisa, we know at the end of the day, they went to Gullahs first, and Chazal comment, they went to Gullahs first because they were out of it and they were more susceptible to assimilation and what was going on out there. And so it wasn't such a great idea. So it was not such a great idea. Moshe Rabbeinu, of all the leaders ever in the history of Klaiswell, was one leader that had the luxury and the ability and the desire to say no when it wasn't a great idea. So why didn't he say no? He gave Musa when they first asked, because he thought they were asking and they're going to make everybody feel shvach, and they, we did that already, and we had the Meraglim, and he said, no, no, Rebbe, we're, we're going to fight. It's, it's all good. We're not, uh, this is not coming from being cowards, a lack of bitachans. Okay, they got that settled. And then Moshe Rabbeinu said, okay. So why do you say okay if it wasn't a great idea? What? That's, I, I don't rule that out, but that sounds like a much lower madrega. What you're suggesting is they made the decision and it wasn't going to change their mind anyway, and therefore it wasn't really us, therefore why not? You're not, you're not wrong. I, let me just repackage it. I think it's an example, a pretty harsh example, which is really what you said, but if it was wrong and you couldn't change their mind, Moshe Rabbeinu did melech, he had a zikainim, he had a shaitim v'shaitrim, he could have explained it to them, as they say. Uh, and he, he didn't. If it was wrong, um, 
if they're chayiv anchem or the chayiv to be persuaded, then you got to do it. He didn't do that. So apparently it wasn't usher enough. Uh, in hindsight, was it a great idea? No. They, might, they were lost first. You'll say, what difference make everybody want the gullahs? But it makes a big difference if you're first. So that's a pretty harsh example in contrast. In B'der Shalom Ritzelelech, you come up to Shemayim HaChamev Esrim. So first we have a scorecard, and we go to the video on the things that are clearly mitzvah, clearly aser. Then we talk about things that are mutter, things not so mutter, but then we talk about, well, what was what's in Hashem? What was what's in Hashem? We just checked off as aser or mutter. The answer is there are things that are not l'chatchila of what would have been the best thing for your Avedis Hashem. And l'maysa, not aser, so nobody could stop you. You ask the shayla, and well, if you ask a shayla from Rav and he tells you it's not aser, that should be a red flag. <laughs> Let me just give you a hint. Uh, I use I use sometimes. I think you know by now. If it's not aser, I won't tell you it's aser. You can't make up chumras. And uh, if it's mutter, it's mutter. So sometimes I'll even say mutter. Sometimes the perceptive people, uh, I'm not here, especially if there are 25 people asking Shaz at once, to give a whole Musa Shmuz about it. So if it's mutter, it's mutter, and if the person wants to know, is this mutter, and it's not us, or, so I say it's mutter. Does that mean it's the best thing in the world for you to be doing right now? Well, if you have another 20 minutes, uh, stay around, and you know, maybe we'll discuss it. There's not always, a, like you said, the person's not always interested in hearing that, uh, and if he's not, it's not us, or it's not us, or. Uh, if he is, but that's part of Avodah Hashem, and this affected uh, not just Echidim, this affected two and a half Shvatim. Really, two Shvatim, the half a Shevet was sent as the mini but it affected them also eventually, but that, they were sent. I can't have a tain on them. But yeah, that's pretty frightening, pretty daunting, that you can have something, and Moshe Rabbeinu, who's the Rabbin Yisrael, who's here always to tell us what Ratzon Hashem is, he was very upset, but then they said, that's not what we meant. And he said, okay, but make sure it doesn't happen and come fight the Mimachazik people. And they said, okay. And then Akash Baruch Hu, it's not just Moshe Rabbeinu. Akash Baruch Hu told Moshe Rabbeinu, there was a Shaila here, can they settle on Eivra Yardin? And it doesn't have a full dinner to Yisrael. It's a Chiddush Niflu. Hashem said, not us, sir. They want to settle here. But, and they had Hashem Shemayim, there were Cheshbenes, Moshe Rabbeinu is going to be buried there. And then want to be buried in the Haskadush, they had Cheshbenes from a Cheshbenes. Lamaisa, it wasn't the best idea. That's what we learned from here. And uh, you're pointing out that they were settled. Yeah. They were settled quicker and they also left quicker. So I don't know if that uh, doesn't seem to be a net gain. Yeah. Raglam is even a um, Stiker example. Yeah, that wasn't us either. Over there, Moshe Rabbeinu, yeah, this is uh, difficult. Remind me to go into it more in Parshish Lot, but it wasn't. Uh, Moshe Rabbeinu was told that, yeah, it's not us, sir, and you can send them, but Ladaitra. Now, everybody asks, if that isn't a red flag, what is Ladaitra? Ladaitra, Hashem says, I'm, I'm not telling you what to do. So, on your plates, so Moshe Rabbeinu no doubt caught that remez. Which is why he was very nervous. He went out of his way to pick the tzaddikim and to vet them, and he tried as hard as he could. There, by the way, you need your answer. 
is that Moshe Rabbeinu would have rather say no. Instead of vetting the biggest tzaddikim and putting in plans and bavarning everything, and you know there's going to be trouble, there might be trouble, why don't you just say no? The answer is, Moshe Rabbeinu is afraid that they would come back and there'd be such pushback. Uh, what are we trying to hide? And why aren't we going? And so he was afraid they were in a place that, that would cause more suspicion based on the madriga that they weren't on. And Moshe Rabbeinu made a cheshbon, which not a tiny Moshe Rabbeinu. We don't find, by the way, anywhere that Moshe Rabbeinu got punished for that. And all of Moshe Rabbeinu's quote-unquote averes were not averes. They were cheshbon averes. So here we got punished, and the Rechaim HaKadosh has 10 different mahalchem hit the rock and talked to the rock, and we're still not sure what he did wrong. You would think the Meraglim would have been worse. It says, Ladaitcha, and he understood there was danger over here. Apparently, the pshat is that saying no could have been just as dangerous because that's not what they wanted to hear. So there you have to emphasize that more. So, again, Lamaisa, everybody's going to do what they have to do. We have to make sure the first one is done right for the PR. And the PR over here is very important. Psychological warfare is important. It's ironic. For a couple of decades now, we're trying to learn Navi and every week, the sugi we happen to be on is reminiscent of what happened in the past week. It's a little scary. But uh, you want to talk both. I, I had this last night in Passaic with a completely different sugi. But psychological warfare, right? Who's going to scare who and who's posturing and who's flexing muscles? And, uh, you know, what do you have to do if you realize that uh, you really can't push back, but you're going to show the world that they can't get away with it? You'll fire missiles into the enemy camp, and the enemy which happens to be us over here, will be smart enough not to retaliate because if they do, they're going to start a major war which nobody really wants. So you have to know that there's posturing to show that you're not giving into this and you're strong also and to try to be machazic to people on both sides. And it's Russian roulette at its worst. And you have to be very careful not to do too much or too little I'm mentioning that because we have one of the results of the battle coming up very soon, either this week or next week, where Klaisel is going to do something that sounds uh, pretty harsh and something we don't do in any other battle. We have Apialocha rules of engagement, and they're dinim when you have to makamel sechayik on the shama, they're dinim of prisoners of war who will live, who won't, they're dinim of what to do, and uh, torture is really never on the agenda. We have one of the rare examples soon where some of it is, and the theme over here is what we're starting with, and that is Laman Yishmu Yiro. The whole reason they asked the Tumim is because they knew the battle in front of them is one of many, and all the Shvatim have to do it, but this battle is going to send a message in one direction or the other to all the nations watching that either we mean business or Chas Shalom, we're not capable of meaning business. And that's why this is something that's very important in terms of, I'm using the word PR, they have to do this right and they have to send a very strong message. Uh, I assume the facts on the ground were that they already had intelligence that the humans that they conquered already were planning attacks to fight back. And that's very mistaber because now that Yoshua Ben-Nun is dead, they look at this as an opportunity of, of war and their favor and there's weakness over here. So, let's see Pasuk Bays. 
They are given direction, Yehuda goes first, and they are promised that the war basically is won before they even got there. Let's go back to the Rashi. And this is where we left off. The first shot. Yudah probably of the strongest Shvatim. So like you mentioned, uh, we had many Shvatim that were very strong. Ruven God, by the way, Chatzim and Asher is not a get, had already gone home. We had no reason to believe they left any detachments to help us. Maybe they did, but we don't have any rights. They fulfilled their promise already a long, long time ago. Shiva Shekivshu, Shiva Shekilku, you had asked, did they, were they sitting on their land? Well, the Shiva Shekivshu was the X amount they conquered just to be able to put their bags down. And Shiva Shekilku is Yoshua bin Nun dividing up the land, even though he divided the land and told them the exact borders of the parts that didn't even conquer yet. He was told to do so by Kosh Baruch. We saw those took him inside in order to give the incentive that the Shvatim have to go and this is what you have to still get and also to prevent Machlikes so everybody should know what they're supposed to be getting that is theirs and not somebody else's. So over here, Azraeli Lichbosh is Mashanafel Begarali is the first battle and as strong as we are and you do is very strong, we can't afford to lose. And therefore, if you're right here and we have a relationship, come fight with me so nothing goes wrong. That's the Pashup shot. Yesh Paisrim, Yudayala, Yuda means the Reisha Shevet and Nasi, who's going to become the favorite of Klai Yisrael. Not yet. Hu Asniel, right now he's the Rosh Hashiva, down the Negev. Hu Yavitz, Sha'ano Aymer, Mesechus Tamura, Mashamai, Yehuda, Achi, Shem, and Shemai. And it means he asked his brother, who apparently was a very capable warrior, and he asks him for help to go fight. Shem, and Achiv, Amar, She'yelech, Itai. The two Pshatim, and Selvi, Estira, as I mentioned. Fi'yelech, Itai, Shem, he goes with him, Pasik Dalid. There were two of the seven nations in this particular area. And again, both Shotim, you have either Shevet Yehuda, asking Shevet Shimon to help him conquer the district of Yehuda, what was left. And he's going to go help the Shevet of Shimon conquer theirs. Or Yehuda, Achi Shimon, who we know already got Hebron, asked his brother to help him with the rest of it, the suburbs, and I'm going to go help you in your backyard, all within the area of Yehuda. But when he says, I'm going to help you, it means I'm going to help you get your homestead. So either on an individual level or on a tribal level. And they have a resounding victory. Yes. V'yelach itoi Shimon. That's Lashiach. That actually supports them, those two. Okay, I don't think the two Pshatim are Stira. I think uh, it's quite possible to shave it, as to shave it. And then he personally said, by the way, stay with me a little longer and I will help you with your next five acres and you help me, which is not a Stira. We see that Hebron in particular, if you remember from Yeshua, was very difficult to conquer. And Osniel ben is actually brought in. The reward was out. Whoever conquers this city with the giant Shabai will 
have my daughter in marriage, and Asniel ben Kanaz won, and he was the best son-in-law he could have davened for, and he ended up becoming the Nasi of the Shevet, and, uh, and ultimately the Shevet, and he was the Shev at the same time. So that's on Itai, is he went with him individually, and Itai can also mean the Shevet. So they win. Now, the uh, prize they were looking for to really make a Rasham was the Melech. Keep in mind the word Melech in Shevetim and Yeshua. We think of a Melech as a king of a country that had many kings who were kings of city-states, which in the ancient world was very common, as late as the city-states under the Greeks and the like, and the city-states were pretty independently owned and operated because it was very hard due to lack of communication and roads that weren't really paved yet. Uh, often it was very difficult to run a country. You'll say, well, that was the golden age of empires. Yeah, Greeks, Romans, yeah. And that's why they had a lot of uh, disorganizations. There were times the central government was very strong and quite often they were very weak because it's just hard to maintain control. So, yeah, they collected taxes more or less, less or more, depending how strong the central government was, but the um, owner and operator, ruthless tyrant, whatever you want to call him, of the general area of one city, two cities, often if it was a walled city, it was only one city, was the melech of that city. So they called it a city-state. And often in Europe, as late as the Middle Ages and even afterwards, every single story in Europe and the shtetl and all the mashalim always start off with the uh, local pirates. And you know the rest of the story, whatever the story is, but it's the local pirates. And then you got the, uh, depends when the story was written. It was the 1800s, unfortunately. You had the mashumid, and then you had the galach, and then you had... So the local pirates wasn't stam, we're, we're scratching our head, but who's the local pirates in Muncie? Baruch Hashem, thank HaKadosh Baruch HaVidei and Maidim, we don't have one. We don't realize what a luxury that is. There's no, uh, we have a mayor, Baruch Hashem, he's orthodox, and we have a, uh, okay, sometimes we have supervisors that aren't that friendly, and, but local pirates is not really, uh, what they had to put up with then. The guy acted like he owned the place, because he did. And we, we don't, we can't even identify with them. He owned the place. You have a police force, you have the FBI, the CIA. Yeah. Maybe you say nobody owns the place, which is possible by the but uh, he doesn't own it. I remember uh, when Ruchama uh, Shane, who happens to be my Schwager's grandmother, that's why the stories in that book, which is a classic for American Jewry, was chazed over many times, the Shepherd Brachas and the like. She spoke herself. That was a sight to see. We don't normally have the public speak, but she was a real personality, as you can tell from the book. If you never read All for the Boss, it's a required reading. Uh, so um, she said, uh, I think it think was this in the book, the gear said Yankasa, that came out a long, long time ago, but she said when she went to learn in the mirror, my husband went to learn in the mirror, that was the Tkufa when certain Americans went, and Scheinberg was there, that's how they were related and lived in the same building in Montesdorf when I went to visit her. And she said they came to the mirror, and for Americans, it was a shock. Shane Kamo, we think of the mirror. How many millions of people were in that city? Um, they had the yeshiva, and they had the yeshiva. 
Chafetz Chaim always used to describe, the map in Shemayim looks very different than the maps we draw here. Maps you draw here have the big cities, you had Warsaw, and you had uh, Vilna, and you had Moscow, and you had you know, big dots, and then you had little dots. And then you had a city like Mir, you couldn't find the dot on a Goyesha map. The map in Shemayim, the only things that count were the people really energizing the world, the Ruchnius. So the Mir was this huge dot, and then you had Slobotka, and then all the other places. Most of the time they made yeshivas in places where nobody else was because they needed peace and quiet to be able to sit and learn. So the Mir was a mining town with very few people, and they had the local uh, locals, we'll uh, keep it at that, and they had the yeshiva, and they had uh, the local pirates, who is relatively modern times, 1930s, and she didn't know. She was at home. He was in second seder, her husband. And at a certain time every day, the lights went off for like a minute. She couldn't understand what was going on. They're so short of like, she's the only half of a minute, like they would flicker for it, and then they'd go on. And then she asked about it, and she found out, no, no, the mayor of the town was just signaling to his wife he's coming home soon. <laughs> Turn off the lights in the whole town. I, by American standards, that's absurd. Have the guy sued and drummed out of office court-martialed, whatever you want to say. What is this? He's turning off electricity in the whole town. The answer is, yeah, he's turning off electricity and nobody said a word because this is as late as the 1930s. It's just indicative. Can you imagine? Extrapolate backwards what was going on. So there were very strong individuals, and I'm giving that introduction because this fellow who we're about to describe is very powerful, very dangerous. And they won the war decisively. The battle is over. They killed 10,000 enemy combatants. That's a lot for just one of the many hundreds of battles we have to fight. That's a lot of people, which means their nervousness on getting this right was well-founded. The Goyim put a lot into this battle, and they lost. And the battle's over, smoke is cleared, and their brave king, the king of this city-state, didn't go down with his ship. He ran, which is not really part of the script, but go tell him. And he's around, and he's dangerous, and I don't know if you ever heard of him, but Sisera, who was exponentially dangerous, uh, also somehow managed to go AWOL instead of fighting alone, which Adani Bezik is going to do. And we have a long Perikanavi and a Haftera talking about how important it was for Yol Eishas Hever Akeni to do something extremely out of the box. We're not going to go into that now, but uh, we'll get to him. Uh, Dever and Berg is coming up. That's why Shaftim is so rich. All the Meissen that you never really fully understood, uh, to, uh, but you know what happened, are, we're going to try to explain somewhat. And she does something, uh, there's nothing more out of the box than what happens when he's running, but she felt it was a Chayit Kaddish to pull him into that tent and get rid of him even though it needs explanation. He's one man, and the battle's over. Barak won. Decisive, as decisive as this was. But he's dangerous, and he's going to come back like a bad penny with a different army if we don't get rid of him. That's why you have to sometimes have pinpointed assassinations and get rid of people. Nothing to do with anything. I just want to mention that. Uh, but it's... Uh, I mentioned this last night. It's, it's frightening how... I think the Army, the Navy, and the Marines are still running on the assumption that if a private is in the Army and his officer, his sergeant, tells him to do something, he really can't discuss it or debate it. Is that still true in the Army, or you wouldn't know? 
Let's assume that's true. If that's true, I would assume that if the commander-in-chief says something, that also shouldn't be debated. Well, that was true until last week, and now it's not true anymore. So how are you supposed to run an army? A good kasha. I'm not saying right or wrong. I'm not privy to the information that they claim they had, but what difference does it make? If you question that, then how does a private listen to a sergeant? How does a sergeant listen to a lieutenant? Has lieutenant listened to major, the one on top of him, captain? And then a major? Okay. Major is two up. Well, it's almost there. It depends who commander-in-chief is. Um, what? Depends what? It depends who the commander-in-chief is. What side? That's what I'm saying. So are we going to have a situation off Mullet's line where a colonel says to a private, do it, and he said, what party are you from? Yeah. That's going to be a big, big issue. I mentioned this last night because it's, uh, I hope we're not going there, but that's pretty dangerous. That's more dangerous than uh, any other scenario, because then you, don't, you can't uh, fight. So, so here we have uh, Adani Bezek, and they're going to have to catch up with him, and we don't even have a drone to just do this quickly, but we've got to find him. And that's, you would think, a Kiddush. The battle's over already. That's a bigger Kiddush than what happened last week. The battle's not over. We didn't fight it yet. and hope we don't have to. They're trying to avoid that. But we have to get him, and you'll see in a moment why I'm explaining this. They run after him, they look for him, they look for him, and they find him hiding somewhere, as every good cowardly general should be doing after the battle. And they find him, and he still has a few men with him, so there's a skirmish. And they fight a second battle, and he runs again. So listen what's going on. So the first person describes the main battle that killed 10,000 of the enemy combatants, and that battle's over, but then he's not here, and he's with some people, and they fight another battle, and they have to win that also, and he runs again. Slippery type of guy. And and they're not letting this go, because like Sisera, he could come back. And they finally catch him. And then they were roundly and soundly condemned by the UN Security Council for just winning the war. Well, they were roundly condemned for fighting the war. So let me go back to you. Notice that. They were roundly condemned for walking across the Yardin and coming in. And then they were condemned for fighting the first battles under Yeshua ben Nun. And then they were condemned for continuing. And now they're condemned for mistreating a POW. So, Hala Doverhu, let's just speak about the last part. As I warned you, this is unusual. We don't find this anywhere in the puzzle. It's the only time this is done. And they didn't torture him as in torturing today, but looks a little unusual. He cuts his toe, he's the raglov, just the toe and the thumb. Why they, that's not even, if you're going to torture, torture, they weren't trying to torture him per se. And all the Mepharshim say, Lamaisa, this was done for a practical reason and for a PR reason. The practical reason was, if you do this, he can't run anymore, and he's very slippery. So they weren't sure they can hold him even after they caught him. They wanted to make sure it wasn't going anywhere. They also wanted to make sure he couldn't hold a gun or a javelin or a spear or a bow and arrow or a dagger. So this isn't torture. It's looked at as torture, but it's not. If you want to torture somebody, there are far better ways to do it. And we're not into that because either he's Chaimisa or he's not. If you want to keep him in captivity, keep him in activity, but don't torture him. So the practical reason is the guy is the most dangerous man alive and they don't want him to run again. They don't want to lose him again. They lost him already twice. They don't want to lose him again. And they don't want him to hurt anybody while he's in captivity. 
Okay, so I just shifted the kasha, which you're, which you're mouthing now. So we have a chiv of los shama, so why not just get rid of him? So the Mepharshim suggests they didn't want to get rid of him because they wanted to have him around for the PR part. that If you think you're going to do this and push back and start trying to take back your cities, it's not going to work, and this land is ours, and you've got a large Middle East and the rest of the world, and it doesn't belong to you. And we'll remind you, you stole it in the first place in the time of Abba And if they parade him around and they let it be known that they really captured him and he was considered very, very powerful, then maybe they'll impress the people when So that's a very good explanation. And they weren't trying to torture him because if they wanted to torture him, there'd be a much more vivid description. And they didn't do that. There was a very simple behinos yedayim and raglayim, and that's what you do if you don't want a guy running or shooting. That's the simple explanation. The pell over here, the Mepharshim point out, is that this guy, as strong and evil as he was, he actually ends off on somewhat of a positive note, that he looked at what was going on, and he took the Musr, and he actually gives us a whole Pesach of Midah Kenegan Midah. This is refreshing and very unusual for Amela Kanan. Now look at the next Pesach. He said, he remarked uh, not just to himself, but also to the people he was talking to, the guards, and probably Asniel uh, Benkanaz. And it was a shtickle tshuva. He says, you know, this is very unusual. I know you Jews don't torture anybody. Either you eliminate us or you let us go or you send us to Africa, whatever the case may be. And it's unusual. He understood this. Jews were not known to do this. And the army was not known to do this. He says, that's strange. Why did you do this? Dafka? Behind his Ragnar? Behind his Yadr? He said, then I realized, I did this to all the kings I conquered. Because I don't want them running or shooting either. And I was known in this country for this type of behavior. And I kept them around under my table, which is an expression, literal and an expression. And they basically, I gave them my crumbs and my leftovers, and they used to eat, eat under my table, and they survived based on my um, generosity of letting them eat the crumbs. And I was so powerful, I had 70 kings, as in my introduction, 70 kings of city-states, or kings of foreign cultures and foreign countries. Everybody wanted a stake in Eretz Yisrael. That was the godless of Eretz Yisrael. So foreign entities sent representatives to buy up certain lands and be the king of that area just to have a foothold in Eretz Yisrael. That was the great esteem Eretz Yisrael was held in. And I conquered 70 of them, and I mistreated them and had them under my table uh, groveling for crumbs, as he describes. And and I did that to show how powerful I was. And he means the only true one God. Your God. He's talking to us. Let's assume. And afterwards, after this whole Musa Seder, they brought him to Shalim and he died there naturally. The Mephoshim point out that there is a chiv why they leave him alive. It sounds like they brought him to Yishlein. They brought him along as a prisoner and he died there naturally. And the answer is they left him alone for the schus of his expressing his remorse and the midda and the living musr and example that he was and and he died peacefully. He's the only one they ever captured who died peacefully. He died in Yishlein of all places. 
That's a pretty big schus. And I'll point out one more thing, one a few minutes of Pele but this is a tremendous musar unto itself. This Adani Bezek fellow, as powerful and ruthless as he was, in Yeshua's time, Yeshua conquered the major cities and conquered the major kings. We have a long list of them in Yeshua. We never even heard of this guy. Here he had 70 kings under his jurisdiction, and he wasn't even big enough to be mentioned in Yeshua. Point out, look at the power. Everybody from all over the world wanted a foothold, and everybody was scrambling for some real estate in Israel. And the kings that were conquered were very powerful, often representing kingdoms themselves. And the Yidin still had Siat both in time of Yeshua, now at the beginning of Sheftim, to conquer them anyway, despite their power. And this guy with 70 kings under him was not even powerful enough to be listed among the main kings in Yeshua. So do the Kavachem yourself. So that's the Siat that they had. And Rashi points it out, just look at Rashi and Zion. Shiva Malachim Ikan Talameh Ma Gidulasan Vashran Shamachi Kanan Shadani Bezek Loha Yakadaili Mana Samachi Kanan. He didn't even make the grade of the top ten, top twenty, top one hundred listed in Yeshua, and these are the main ones that Yeshua got first. Beshemelch, and he wasn't officially a king. As I said, he was a king over a city state. And yet we have a description of his power that he had dominion over seventy other kings or governors of city states. Which will be next week's discussion, the next battle of why in the world are they going to conquer Yishalayim if it says in Yeshua Yishalayim is conquered already. So I have to figure that out. It's not an important kasha. And Lamaisa, the battle is now really over, and he's no longer with the living. He's the only one mentioned to do a chatzi tshuva and recognize a Kodesh Baruch Hu. Let's go to the Peleyayetz. We're at page Mem Gimel, and we're talking about Onah, the Gemara Babetzi and the discussion of Onah talks about something we discussed Shabbos afternoon, because there is Onah by real estate. You can't rip a guy off and charge certainly more than 100%. Places says you get up to double, but if you know the price is wrong, even ripping him off 50% is Osir. It's also Chil the reason why it's a klav, I don't know, because real estate, by definition, is very difficult to figure out how much it's worth because the value could change very quickly based on how many people want it. Location, location, location means that yesterday it might have been worth a million and now all of a sudden it's hot. It's worth two million. That's the real value because there is no inherent value. That is clearly evident in the last passage we just saw in the Navi section, and that is that Eretz Yisrael was always hot, so to speak, and people from all over the world, you could be in uh, Spain, if there was anybody there then, uh, you could be in Central Africa, uh, you sent people a reward for your subjects, for your dukes, for your princes, is go conquer something in Yisrael, it's well worth it, hold on to it. And that's why you have so many kings, a small country relative to the rest of the world. Why are there so many kings here? We're finally finished the 31 kings, then we got the city-states and more kings, and they have 70 kings under them. What are all these people doing here? The answer is they weren't always the local yokels. There were people who sent, uh, call it an embassy, they wanted a footprint. There are countries, many countries in this world, um, I've never been to uh, Congo, that still exists. There's a Republic of Congo. I don't see the uh, Umas Oilam scrambling for a foothold. 
maybe they are, maybe it's a rich in gold and silver, but you don't have countries like this. You have cities which uh, from the Gashmias are people attracted to, like New York, and Baruch Hashem, uh, the Umas Ulam have a lot of real estate, and that's good because when the Iranians have real estate there, you can seize it as sanction and punishment to collect what's coming. And it's not just the Iranians. And interesting that they still want to buy real estate here because it's been done before by federal judges. They're saying you got to get a building or two in New York because that holds its value. Ah, you have enough oil where you have to go swimming? Well, got to have something in New York. Well, that has actually been for various countries. Maybe they're thinking about it twice now. But Ana is a hard thing to figure out. What is the value of it? Well, it depends in real estate how many people want it. Last paragraph on page Mem Gimel, the Adua. So, just 20 minutes ago, we discussed the Din and Shemayim, or longer, and they discussed Averis, Mitzvahs, Ratzon Hashem, what was the The first thing they discuss in the first three questions is Did you do business honestly? Not doing business honestly is also. Straight Kanevo sometimes, it could be Ona, it could be Eshek, it could be Skiris uh, Palem, it could be many things. Most importantly, it's really a barometer of Bitochen and Amunah. If a person is constantly messing that up, it shows that he doesn't have Bitochen. And that's why Machar is such a big thing. And he says that in the next line. The more Bitochen and you have, the more Siat Shemai you'll have. The more Bitochen a person has, the more. Ashkacha pratis there is. So by definition, you'll have more hatzlacha on what you're doing, which is a tremendous thing to keep in mind because the Yitzhar is always there to cut corners, but if you know that you're not only not cutting corners, it can backfire. And if you don't do that, just rely on Hashem and do the right thing, you'll make more money, possibly. Birchas Hashem hi tashirenu. If you do the right thing and you deserve it, you'll have the Aisha recovered. And he says, because Aisha Recovered is not always good for a person, it's a big Nisayan, and therefore doing the right thing doesn't trigger Aisha Recovered. It triggers that you'll have what to eat, and if you're Nachala as Aisha Recovered with the Nisayan, they're giving what's not going to like, you'll have that also, but you'll have what you're supposed to have, you'll have the Siat Hashmaya. That's why he says the next line, Vadai Shalal Yechselachmai. You and you won't have to work harder than you should be working, you'll have time for your Ruchnius. And your family, Asharabah Lamazev, Tevla Lamaba. Mitzhashem, we will continue next week.